Good afternoon. I am obviously not Pete. Uh, as Steve mentioned, he is unwell today. So this has been a last minute call up. Uh, if you'd like to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, today all over the country and all over the world, people will remember you and what your son did. They will remember what that means. Some will be challenged, some will be confused, but hopefully most of those who are worshipping will be joyed. I pray that we remember that, that we are filled with joy and hope at what your son's sacrifice means for us. I pray tonight that as we look at First Peter, we can have a better understanding of what it means to be living stones tied to the rejected cornerstone. I pray that you are at work through this message. In your name, amen. Uh, thankfully, I had a handful of First Peter sermons prepared. This is the last one that I have prepared, so hopefully Pete's well next week. Uh, I will give a brief summary because the sermons have been spread out over a few months of what has gone uh, on earlier in First Peter. First, Peter has established that he's worth listening to in chapter one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Essentially says, hey, I'm an apostle. I know what I'm talking about. Please listen to what I say next. Then he says uh, something amazing. We have an inheritance that can encourage us through any current suffering. And that's in verses 2 to 12 of chapter 1. And then this inheritance that is guaranteed, that should fill us with joy and hope, should change our behaviour. And that's the rest of chapter 1. And that leads us to today, uh, chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2. And I will just quickly note that chapter 1 ends with a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. People are like grass and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it's this quote, this ending of chapter 1 and reference to Isaiah chapter 40, that we need to have uh, in mind because we start the chapter with a classic uh, New Testament epistle word, therefore. Therefore, <laughs> rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. An interpretation of this verse is simple because by yourselves you wither and fall away. Align yourselves with the Lord. Do as he says. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, hypocrisy envy, and slander. Simple instruction, hard to do, <laughs> like a lot of instructions. And then we move on to verse 2. When Peter is encouraging Christians to crave the pure, spirit, pure spiritual milk like newborn infants, it's not about immaturity. Uh, you may have heard uh, and have it somewhere in the back of your head that elsewhere in the Bible there is this talk about you're so immature, you can only handle the milk, you're not up to the meat. This is not the same kind of reference. Paul is writing to a church who is struggling with some uh, self-aggrandizing, that they can only uh, handle the nice parts of the gospel and are not changing their behaviour. Peter here is saying, you are like babies. You are dependent on this message. There are some similarities, but I just want to clear up that it's 
not a criticism in the same way that Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I don't know if you know much about newborn babies, but I can suggest you don't need to know much that they can't do much for themselves. <laughs> they need to be fed, carried, clothed, loved, kept alive by the people caring for them. Likewise, we Christians are wholly dependent on the Lord. And it's that spiritual milk we should crave. We should want that. We should long for the Lord in the way that a baby longs for milk. It is all that they can want and need. That is what the Lord and his word is for us. And to do that, we need to align ourselves with the Lord through our dependency and our choice. It will set the tone of this whole passage. Again and again, Peter draws a straight line from who and what Jesus is and what he has done to who we are and what we can and should do as Christians. He is a living stone. We will become living stones. He was the ultimate priest. And we, as Christians, will be a holy priesthood. He offered and was the perfect spiritual sacrifice. And we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. I want to emphasize that this passage is very black and white in one regard. You are either part of the people who rejected the cornerstone or part of the people who are built on the cornerstone. So much of our experience and so much of this broken, fallen world is grey and messy and complicated. And that is a real thing we have to wrestle with day to day. But here in 1 Peter chapter 2, there is something truly black and white. Who you are in Christ. Have you accepted or have you rejected? I spent uh, some time wondering how best to help us grasp the concept of a cornerstone. It's already a pretty good metaphor, but the people hearing Peter's letter read aloud would have known much more intimately and more practically that a stonemason's choice for the cornerstone was pivotal for the stability and usefulness of the whole building. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm guessing collectively we're less well acquainted with the day-to-day -day practicalities of building a house. My apologies to any of the builders around. <laughs> so I thought about sports analogies. A good centre in netball, a good spine in footy, a good bowling attack in cricket. I thought of cooking, a good base ingredient. And if you're at my house, that's probably started by frying onions and garlic and working from there. But in short, I came back to building metaphors. Who knew the Bible had a good idea there? <laughs> a good, stable foundation. You need something to build on that won't change or shift or ruin what you've started. You need a good, firm foundation. And that is the same idea as a cornerstone. We sung today about the cornerstone, and uh, we heard uh, Steve read from an earlier part of the Bible, can't remember where, that it is the plumb line. It will set our understanding of righteousness and faithfulness. And that is the same idea. Jesus will be and is that cornerstone. The people of Jesus' time, by and large, rejected him. 
They crucified him and proclaimed him wrong. God the Father had chosen him from the beginning, always from the beginning, to be our saviour, our means of reconciliation, our sole hope. We, the church, are built on Jesus. We can and do only exist by his sacrifice for us in our place. And that is incredibly liberating, joyous and delightful. But it is also humbling and challenging and radically different to what humans in general want. I don't want to be told I'm sinful, that I need help. Bethany today joked that, oh, of course we can't ask people for help when we're looking at the map. We need to look it up ourselves. And she's right. I don't like asking for help. I like being self-dependent. I like being self-reliant. But I can't save myself. And uh, before I became a Christian, it was offensive. I didn't like being told that I was a sinner. It's part of the reason that I was a militant atheist. I wanted to fight against it, rage against this idea that I was at fault, that I couldn't fix the problem. And yet, uh, the Bible knows that that is how we respond. If uh, you've still got your Bibles open, it's here in verse 8. A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It is hard acknowledging that Jesus was right, (laughs) that we need him, that we are at fault and we need saving. But they're our options. Reject him, stumble and fall, or accept him and be built on him. As Christians, Jesus is precious to us because he is that cornerstone. We are built on him and in him and through him. It can give us hope and change the way we live. But it boils down to that simple choice. Peter then says, if you believe this, if you are Christians, if you are part of this chosen royal priesthood, part of this holy nation, part of God's special possession, then act in a way that other people will be interested, that will want to come, that whatever they accuse you of, it will not be bad behaviour. They may say you're crazy. They may say you're offensive for saying they are sinners needing of saving. But you should act in a way that makes them go, at the very least, they're morally good. (laughs) It is difficult to uh, present people with the fact that they are sinners in need of saving without them thinking you are morally wrong. But it is what we are called to do. Uh, In verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I cannot and couldn't even imagine prescribing how exactly to behave or what to say or what to do to make that true. But I do implore you to meditate on that to meditate on this instructions that as Christians we need to live in a way that even though we are accused of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds. Do things that make people say Christians do good. I will finish by saying we are tied to and identified with Jesus. 
And this is wonderful. And it means we should live like he did, to serve sacrificially, willing to obey God at all costs. Uh, I will pray and then we'll have another song. Heavenly Father, you call us to a holiness that we cannot achieve on our own. You tell us that on our own we are sinful and weak and frail. And that is scary and sad and can be hard to swallow. And yet, you provide the soothing balm that is Jesus. You provide the answer, the salvation. I pray that that changes us, gives us hope, and makes us live for your glory. In your name, amen.